It is always so, so good to be with you here at First Baptist Church, and so thanks for letting me be part of your pastor sabbatical by coming every month and sharing our Sunday with you. It's been wonderful, and I look forward to coming back again when he's here uh, and hearing all the great stories of his adventures that we've been following him around on social media. It's been fun to watch that. I always start with a little uh, report from the Baptist Convention. I want to tell you about some exciting things. You know, in the midst of a pandemic, that's not exactly the, the time in which you plant new churches. That's just not the way it works. But God has interestingly opened up a door uh, to plant a new church on Cape Cod. Uh, we have a young man who's there, and of course, he, he, he was supposed to launch on Easter. Well, as you can imagine, that did not happen. Uh, but the town heard his music. They have some really good musicians in their church. And they said, do you think that if you could come to the town green and just play some music once a week and just let people enjoy, like they can come sit in the chairs and just listen to music? And we were like, Sure. So even though he hasn't got to start the church, he has been having about 70 people from the community come and just listen to the music. So we don't know when he'll get to actually start worship services, but do pray for him. His name is Jeremy. Pray for him that God would open up a door uh, because it's kind of exciting just to have the town. Not many towns want a church to deliver music, but if you have good music, I guess they will. So uh, pray for him. Uh, It's kind of exciting to see what God is doing in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, And thanks for being a part of the Baptist Convention. Your praying, your giving, and your involvement really do make a difference in the lives of young men like Jeremy and other projects that are going on all over New England. So thanks for being part of that. Well, today we're going to be looking in 1 Samuel 25. We're going to be looking at a story that you probably did hear at least once or twice in Sunday school, but it's not one of the more common stories. So you might think, boy, I don't remember that part, because it was a story that you probably didn't hear every year. It wasn't like David and Goliath or Jonah you know, and the, and the big fish or Noah and the, and, the, and the ark. It was one of those more rare sermons. Uh, uh, stories, but it's an important story, and it has really powerful relevance to what our culture and what is experiencing right now and what we're experiencing in our own lives. Because it's a rarer story, I want to read the whole story, which is kind of a lengthy part of Scripture, so just bear with me. Uh, it's quite a few verses, but because it's a rare story, I think we should read the whole thing. So 1 Samuel chapter 25, beginning in verse 2. A man in Maon had a business in Carmel. He was very rich with 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name Abigail. The woman was intelligent and beautiful, but the man, a Calebite, was harsh and evil in his dealings. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So David sent 10 young men instructing them, Go up to Carmel, and when you come to Nabal, greet him in my name. Then say this to him, long life to you and peace to you and to your family and to all that is yours. I hear that you're shearing sheep. When your shepherds were with us, we did not harass them and nothing of theirs was missing the whole time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. And so let my young men find favor with you for we have come on a feast day. Please give whatever you can afford to your servants and to your son David. David's young men went and said all of these things to Nabal on on, on David's behalf, and they waited. Nabal asked them, Who is David? Who is Jesse's son? Many slaves these days are running away from their masters. Am I supposed to take my bread and my water and my meat that I butchered for my shears and give them to these men? I don't know where they're from. David's men retrace their steps. And when they returned to him, they reported all of these words. 
he said to his men, all of you, put on your swords. So David and all of his men put on their swords. About 400 men followed David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. One of Nabal's young men informed Abigail, Nabal's wife, Look, David sent messages from the wilderness to greet our master, but he yelled at them. Abigail hurried, taking 200 loaves of bread and two skins of wine and five butchered sheep and a bushel of roasted grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and she loaded them on donkeys. And she rode the donkey down a mountain pass, hidden from view. She saw David and his men coming toward her, and she met them. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off the ground and fell with her face to the ground in front of David. My Lord should pay no attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for he lives up to his name. His name is Nabal, and stupidity is all he knows. Now, that was his wife talking right there, okay? (laughs) I, your servant... Didn't see my Lord's young men whom you sent. Accept this gift your servant has brought you, and let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord is certain to make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because he fights the Lord's battles. Throughout your life may evil not be found in you. Then David said to Abigail, Praise to the Lord God of Israel who sent you to meet me today. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord God of Israel lives, who prevented me from harming you, if you had not come to me quickly, Nabal wouldn't have had any men left by morning light. Then Abigail went to Nabal, and there was a feast in his house, holding a feast fit for a king. And Nabal was in a good mood and very drunk. So she didn't say anything to him until the morning light. In the morning when Nabal sobered up, his wife told him about all of these events. And he had a seizure and became paralyzed. About ten days later, Nabal died. Now I know that's a long story. But in that story is some powerful truth that is relevant for us today. Would you take a moment and pray with me that God would allow this story to speak to us today? Lord, we thank you for this scripture, this story that that we probably have heard a few times in our lives, but perhaps not one of the most common stories in the Old Testament. I pray that you might use this historic scripture to speak to us in a fresh, new, relevant way in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the story opens by telling us about this businessman who lived on Mount Carmel. Now, Mount Carmel is located near the Mediterranean coast of Israel, and it overlooks the city of Haifa. Uh, now, if you know anything about uh, the, the, the Middle East, it's, uh, at, least, at least in my opinion, it's kind of sandy and scrub brushy. You know, it reminds me of Oklahoma. All right, you know, it's just not, it's not really a land with lots of greenery. If you want to see greenery, you go to Vermont. All right, but if you want to see lots of uh, little small bushes and lots of sand... You go to the Middle East, except that in this particular section of the Middle East, right here where Carmel is at, uh, that's not the way it is. Carmel happens to be blessed with a lot of extra water and lots of beautiful greenery. And so the word Carmel itself, the actual word, can be translated as vineyard, orchard, or park. And it lives up to its name. That's the way it looks. So in the middle of this pretty kind of barren sort of area of the world is this incredible, beautiful place called Carmel. Uh, I've actually got a picture of it that my wife took the last time we were there. Uh, And right now you can't really travel much. It's not really safe because of the virus. Uh, But the next time I go to Israel, some of you should go with me. It's really a beautiful, a wonderful experience. So you can see all the greenery and the fields and all of that. So think of lots of barrenness. In the middle of all the barrenness, here's something really amazing, this beautiful place. That's where this story took place. Well, here in this beautiful place, there is this businessman. He's a wealthy businessman. Notice how they counted his wealth. 
It wasn't in his 401k. Uh, he wasn't looking at the stock market every day trying to figure out what the Dow was doing. No, they counted wealth in sheep and in goats and things like that. That's how they counted wealth back then. So this guy had a lot. He had big, just a ton of sheep, a ton of goats. He had it all. It was an incredible, he was an incredible wealthy guy. Well, each year, uh, for people like him, who would have all these sheep, they would shear the sheep and sell the wool. Now, I really can't imagine what 3,000 sheep being sheared at once looked like. That must have been the mountain of wool. must have been incredible. And it was a time of great celebration. They would sell the wool, and they'd get all this money. And so they would, they would just throw a big party, and they would invite all their friends and their family, and they would sort of celebrate their good fortune. It would just be like an exciting time whenever they would have sheep shearing day. And so that's what, uh, that's what Nabal did. He sheared the sheep, and he had this incredible party, and everybody came, and it was wonderful. Now, this wealthy man's name, I already mentioned, was Nabal. It's interesting because that word, the word Nabal, actually means foolish or wicked. I think it's a little interesting that someone named their kid that. You know, that's an interesting name. I wonder if really his name was like Bob or Joe or Fred, and they just called him this whenever he started acting stupid. We don't really know, but it just says his name was Nabal. This particular man surely lived up to his name. He was being described right here in the Bible and by his friends and by even his wife as being foolish, harsh, evil, stupid. Now, we don't know exactly why he had that reputation. We don't know exactly why he behaved that way and earned his name. We don't know for sure. But we can assume that something must have happened in his life to make him that way. I mean, when he was born, I'm sure he was a cute, cuddly little baby. Just yesterday, I had a brand new niece that was born in Illinois. I've got, I've got seen beautiful pictures already uh, on the internet. Uh, that's the beauty of social media. You get to see, you know, five minutes after a baby's born, you get to see him. It's beautiful. And she's a happy, joyful little baby. All of us when we were born, we were happy, joyful little babies. And as we grow up, sometimes we remain happy and joyful, sometimes not. <laughs> we don't know exactly what happened in Nabal's life, but something took place that changed him from the happy Fred, Bob, John, Tom, whatever his name was when he was born, to being known as Nabal, harsh, angry, evil. We don't know exactly what it was that made him like that. But here's what we do know. We do know that he actually had a lot of reasons to be happy. I mean, think about this for a moment. He was rich. He wasn't just rich. The Bible describes him as very rich. Uh, I, during the pandemic, I've run out of things to watch on TV. You probably have too. You know, it's like, really, I'm sick of watching reruns, right? You know, only, only so many Andy Griffiths you can watch before you start saying it along with the, with the actors, you know? So I've been watching some stuff on YouTube, and, and there's this one family that has like a yacht, and they like go around, you know, and all oh, they've, they've been, really been struggling. They've been stranded in Fiji for about three months. What a place to be stranded, right? You know, and so yesterday, yesterday on the episode that they presented, they were kind of uh, complaining a little bit about being stranded in Fiji. And I was having a really hard time feeling bad for him you know like like you got a yacht you're rich you're in Fiji like for like a month like yeah we feel bad for you you know this guy he was rich this guy in the story he was rich it should have made him happy he was stranded in Fiji or he was in this beautiful Mount Carmel in the midst of everyone else living in a barren land he lives in this oasis he should have been happy but he was not he was married to a woman who was both intelligent and and beautiful. Now, being married myself to a woman who is intelligent and beautiful, I can tell you it makes me very happy, all right? He should have been very happy about that. 
but he was not. He lived in this amazing part of Israel. He got to wake up every morning and he got to sort of look out of his window and see that scene that I just showed you a picture of a couple minutes ago. He got to see the beautiful fields and all that. And everyone else woke up and they saw dirt and sand and little scrubby bushes. He got to wake up and go, wow. Except he didn't. He woke up and said, he just wasn't happy. He had enjoyed the protection of David and his followers. Now, as a rich businessman, uh, I think you would think he would be happy having like a private security force that worked for him for free. He should have been happy, but he was not. He was one of God's chosen people, especially blessed by the Father in so many ways. And he understood that heritage, and it should have made him happy, but it did not. The Bible describes him as a Calebite. That was a prestigious family of historic significance in the life of Israel. Do you remember Caleb? Remember when you were in Sunday school? Caleb and Joshua, they were the two good spies out of the 12 scouts that were sent into the land. And 10 came back and said, oh, we can't do it. But Joshua and Caleb said, we got this. We can do it. They were the, they were the two good ones, right? Uh, this was, Nabal was one of Caleb's like descendants, one of this, this heritage family that was so important in the life of his nation. That would be like being the great-great-grandson of, of George Washington or something like that. Wouldn't it be exciting? Uh, Caleb was well known as a faithful follower of the Lord, and he was given this mountain as a reward for his commitment and faithfulness to God. But we do know that as the generations passed, the fame of Caleb's family had begun to wane. Now, historical records are very, very sparse. As you can imagine, you're talking about something that happened 3,000 years ago. Very sparse historical records. But it appears that as time went by, the Calebites were sort of pushed off of part of the mountain, a significant part of the mountain, and they lost some of their previous prestige and honor. Now, obviously, Caleb's family did not deserve such treatment, but that's what they got. That oftentimes happens. A hundred years later, you're not always remembered as well in the history books as perhaps you were in the beginning. Now, maybe this is what made Nabal so harsh and angry. Maybe he would wake up in the morning and looking at the mountain view that he could see, instead of rejoicing in that beautiful mountain view, he would look behind him at the mountain that he no longer owned and maybe that would make him mad. I, oh, we don't really know. We sort of have to just sort of read into the story a little bit. We don't know what made him angry. Maybe he looked at his beautiful wife who was intelligent and smart, and instead of rejoicing, maybe he thought, she's smarter than me, and I don't like it. You know, we don't know. Maybe he looked at all of his sheep and all of his land and all of his donkeys and camels, and maybe instead of rejoicing that he had 5,000, maybe he wished he had 10,000. We don't know. But something had happened that had offended Nabal. Some kind of offense, something had gotten into his heart, had gotten into his spirit that made him angry and that made him frustrated and that caused him to become harsh and angry. And whatever it was, whether it was his family heritage, maybe not being as well as it once was, whatever it was, something had happened and whatever it was, instead of facing the pain and dealing with the ramifications of whatever that offense was and learning the power of forgiveness and then moving on with life, Nabal internalized the offense, and he developed a spirit of offense. Now, this is important. Don't miss this in the story. You see, once Nabal had given in to the spirit of offense, then everything in his life offended him. I mean, he had a great family heritage, right? He, he had money. 
He had an amazing wife. He had free protection from robbers. He even had a great spiritual foundation being one of God's chosen people. But somehow Nabal could overlook all of that. And all he could see was the offense. All he could see was the negative. And he remained focused on whatever offended him. And that, that, that focus, that focus on the offense poisoned his relationships, poisoned his entire life. It robbed him of joy and it robbed him of happiness that he should have felt at what was obviously a blessed life. Everyone else would have loved to have his life, loved to have his his home, loved to have his wife, loved to have his possessions, loved to have his family heritage. Everyone else would have said, this is fantastic. I want that. And he was like, this is all I got. I got left with this lousy life that I got. What a sad thing. There's something that had gotten inside of him that made him miss the blessings and focus on the pain. Now here's why I think this story is important, even though it's one of the lesser Old Testament stories and not one that we hear so often. The reason why I think this is so important is because I see this happening in people's lives today. I see it happening in families. I see it happening in churches. I see it happening in our nation. We have become an offended people. We are living in one of the wealthiest nations in the world. And yet all we complain about is that the stock market hasn't hit another high this year. Really? That's what you're worried about? I got friends in other countries that didn't eat yesterday, okay? And we're worried about our 401ks. You know, you think about it. We, we complain, well, I wish that our pastor was this, or I wish that the music at church was that, or I wish that the Sunday school program was this and that and the other. And we love to complain. There are people today meeting under a tree, I mean, my friend Jeremy, who I told you about, he's just meeting in like a, a green. He doesn't have a building. He doesn't have a, a, doesn't have a speaker. He doesn't have, oh, look at the stained glass windows. Doggone it. Look at those. Wow. <laughs> he, he's got a sun catcher probably hanging in his kitchen window or something like that, you know. I mean, we, we are so blessed. And yet once we get offended, somehow we see none of that. We see none of that. We just have this anger inside of us. And it's robbing us of the joy that we should be experiencing living at this time in history, even with the pandemic. And I know it's, the pandemic's been tough and it's been hard. And, and I know 170,000 people have passed away and that is painful. But they were talking at one point about several million people dying. Thank God we're all still here, right? We should be rejoicing and saying hallelujah for the grace of God that has allowed us to stay healthy and be here. And yet... We're too hard, too busy complaining. Oh, God, they make me wear a mask. Can you believe they make me wear a mask? I mean, come on. I don't like it either, but it's here, right? Of all things, what a small inconvenience. We're allowing this kind of stuff to rob us of the joy and the happiness that we should be feeling in what is clearly a blessed experience of life. Now, some may say, well, it was Nabal's life, it's, it's my life. If I want to be grumpy and mean, I can. But think about how this was impacting the people around Nabal. Think about how it impacts us when we're the negative, grumpy, harsh person. All right, Nabal's, uh, Nabal's behavior was impacting a lot of people around him in incredibly negative ways. And while maybe he's free to be miserable if he wants to be, all those other people, why should they have to be miserable just because he is? His wife is miserable. His employees are miserable. David's miserable. There's a lot of people being hurt by, by Nabal's actions. I think the same thing 
is true in our own lives. We oftentimes like to think of ourselves as sort of islands unto ourselves. that I can be grumpy if I want to be, or I can be this, I can be that, it's my life, I can do whatever I want to do. We like to talk about our individual rights and our individual this and our individual that. We like to focus on ourselves and some great narcissistic culture that we've now created. But it's not just about us. It is about our spouses. It is about our kids. It is about our parents. It is about our next door neighbors. It is about the people around us who are struggling. We all have friends and family and co-workers and neighbors who are impacted by our actions, by our attitude, by our behavior. And when we selfishly make it all about us instead of about the blessings that are all around us, then it really does make this a difficult, a much more difficult experience to go through than it should be. Well, let's move on in the story. Uh, We had Nabal. He's the guy who's angry and mean. The other character in the story, of course, is David. And in verses 4 through 6, David hears that Nabal is shearing his sheep. Now, he knows that when you shear the sheep, you throw a big party. And he knows there's lots of food, and there's lots of excitement, and there's all kind of great stuff going on. And he's thinking to himself, I'd like to get get on a little bit in on that. You know, he's invited everyone else to the party. I'd like to come too. At the time, at the time that this story takes place, David is living in the wilderness, Now, why is he living in the wilderness? Is he there because he likes camping? No, he's in the wilderness because he was running from King Saul who was trying to kill him. Now, why was he running from King Saul? Was it because he was a criminal and he did something bad? No, it's because he did something good. He helped King Saul defeat. He was like a general in the army. He helped King Saul defeat all of his enemies. And instead of being rewarded, King Saul got jealous and decides to try to kill David. And so David's having to hide in the wilderness for doing something good. Isn't that crazy? It's like a messed up story. So David needs supplies. You know, back then in the wilderness, you couldn't just drop by Cumbies and get a slice of pizza for 99 cents. Isn't that the greatest deal ever? They would go to Cumbies and get a pizza for 99 cents and an iced tea for $1.06. That's with tax. So for $2.12, you can have lunch. Mm, wow. You can see why I have this roll right here. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they didn't have Cumbies back then. They didn't have Instacart and DoorDash and Grubhub. <laughs> They were in the wilderness. So you shot a squirrel <laughs> and gnawed on that for a little bit. Mm, doesn't that sound exciting? <laughs> yeah. David decides he's tired of eating squirrel. <laughs> he said, hey, there's a party going on over there at Nabal's house. We know he's giving away a lot of stuff. Let's, let's just go ask him for a little bit. I mean, we've protected his sheep. We've helped him be successful. The reason he's able to have all that is because of us. So let's just go see if he'll share some with us. So it's interesting what David does. David thinks this through. David's a good leader. He thinks it through and he sends young men. Now, I'm not a great Hebrew scholar, but the word there in Hebrew used for young men most often refers to adolescence. Okay? So think about a teenager who's trying to grow a beard, but it's like two pieces here and one piece there. Right? You know, it doesn't look great. This is a group of young men. Um, this is probably their first assignment. You know, now David could have sent, he had with him some seasoned warriors. Okay, he could have sent some seasoned warriors who had on their armor and their sword who showed up and said, David wants a donation. (laughs) It would have looked like the mafia showing up and it wouldn't have been optional. Instead, he sends some teenagers who just says, hey, just go ask him if he'll share a little bit with us. He tells them to use a very traditional Hebrew greeting. This phrase he tells them to say, which is long life to you and peace to you and to your family and to all that is yours. It's a very traditional way of introducing yourself. And the proper response that Nabal should say back to them is, and long life to you 
and peace to you and to your family and to all that is yours. It's like a kind of a, like what's supposed to happen, like a kind of a back and forth kind of thing. And it oftentimes was the beginning of a way that you started a new friendship with someone. It was very traditional. He tells them to do all this. So the young men show up. They say all these things. They do it just right. They're pretty proud. It's their first assignment. And they think, oh, David's going to be so happy with it. We're getting a promotion. When we get back to the, to the, to the, you know, the, the camp, it's going to be great. We're not going to have to eat squirrel. We're so excited. You know, we're going to get pizza from Cumbies. Yes, it's so good. And how does Nabal respond? Well, look at Nabal's response. Uh, let's see. One would think that Nabal would be happy to share with David. I mean, after all, part of the reason he had all this stuff was because of David. So you would think he'd be happy. But how does he respond? Verse 10. Nabal said, Who is David? Who is Jesse's son? Many slaves these days are running away from their masters. Now, you have to understand a little bit of Hebrew culture to understand what he's saying here. When he says, Who is David? First of all, everyone knows who David is. He was the king of the army that just defeated the enemy and is now hiding in the woods. Okay, everyone knows who David is. What he's saying is, I don't care who you are. I don't care that you've made a difference. I don't care that you've, you've, you've changed us. I don't care. I just don't care. I don't care what you've done to us. When he says this phrase, who is Jesse's son? All right, this is, this is an attack. He's supposed to say, remember David said to him, blessings to you and to your family. It's supposed to be like a blessing. He returns a curse. <laughs> Who's your family? <laughs> I don't care who your family is. You're nothing to me. When he says many slaves these days are running away from your master, that was, that was a specific type of insult in their culture. We don't have an exact type of insult like that in our culture. The closest thing we would have would be to use the N-word with someone. Just try that this afternoon with someone you're having a disagreement with. And next week when we see you with your black eye, we'll know exactly how that result worked out, right? David has gone out of his way to try to ask in a nice way. Nabal goes out of his way to insult David on every hand, to try to insult who he is, who his family is, and even his ethnicity. He, he is like he works hard to insult David. He really doesn't care about what David has done for him. Instead of repaying David's, uh, David's kindness with generosity, he insults him and his family and his men. Now, could you imagine... What it's like for these young men, these ten young men, you know, they start off, they're so excited. It's their first assignment from the king, and it's easy, or from, from David. It's, it's an easy one, too, because we know, I mean, obviously, Nabal's going to give us some food. They're having a party, and we've protected their, surely Nabal's going to be nice. This is the, we're going to, we're going to, like our first assignment's going to go well. And then they get this response, and now they're trudging back to the camp, thinking, okay, so which one of us is going to tell David what Nabal said? Because <laughs> we're not going to get that promotion we thought we were going to get, and we're not getting no pizza from Cumbies either. It's squirrel tonight. <laughs> Yeah. Obviously, they were disappointed. And how does David respond when he hears their message? Now, David was a good man, all right? David was trying to do right. But, you know, this was a, this was a pretty offensive. Nabal pushed all of his buttons. Verses 12 and 13, it says that, that David says, put on your swords. When he said, put on your swords, it wasn't because they were going to have a parade. Okay, they weren't marching down Main Street in formation with a flag and a parade. They were planning on chopping off somebody's head. Okay, this was this when he says, "Put on your swords." He means we're going to war. This guy's offended me, and we'll go show him who's boss. Remember, David was a general. He was a man of action, and he was surrounded by some men who were, were soldiers. And, and, and David was a good man, but when he heard how harsh Nabal was to his men, he lost his temper. You know, none of us are perfect, right? We all try to be good. We try to be Christian. We try to be nice. But you ever said something to your spouse you shouldn't have said? And like as soon as the words come out, you go, 
Can I take those back? <laughs> you ever hit the enter button on social media when you should have hit the delete button? <laughs> you ever done that? Yeah. And you knew as soon as you did it, oops, oops at least that kind, you can delete it quickly, you know, quickly. Yeah. You know, we all, even good people, sometimes lose our temper. He told his men to get their swords. David plans to go find Nabal and kill him and all of his men. Now, now we know that was wrong. We know that wasn't the right way for David to respond. We understand that. But we also can kind of understand his feelings, right? I mean, David has spent months protecting some guy's sheep, some guy that he barely knew. He didn't get paid for it. He was just asking for, like, give me a loaf of bread and some peanut butter so I can feed my people, something other than squirrel. You know, just help me out here. And the only thing he gets instead is, is insults and attacks. Uh, you know, we, we can sort of get this of why David would respond, even though it's wrong. We can sort of get it. But this teaches us something. Now think about this. Nabal had the spirit of offense. And even though David had gone out of his way to try to say everything just right to make it all good, Nabal went out of his way to sort of push all of David's buttons, and it worked. <laughs> it caused a problem. You see, people with the spirit of offense, they can get even nice people upset. As a matter of fact, I would go so far to say that people with the spirit of offense excel in getting nice people upset. They have the ability to somehow push all the buttons and get everyone in the room angry. Some of you right now are thinking of someone you know who fits that description. So you know what I'm talking about, right? People with the spirit of the fence, they have this ability. They have the, uh, this ability to somehow make even the nice people angry. Uh, and it's tough. It's tough to watch. It's tough to see. You know, I, I like to think of myself as a, as a nice person. You have to ask other people if I am or not, but I think I am. I think I'm a nice person. And when I was a pastor of a church, I used to go out of my way. You know, there was always every church. I hope this church doesn't. Uh, but every church has one or two people who think their spiritual gift is to keep the pastor humble by complaining about everything. <laughs> you know, criticism is actually not a spiritual gift, okay? But some people, every church has one or two that think it is. And so I had a lady, and it was her gift. You know, it was her gift. And uh, so for months, she'd been after me over this and that and the other thing. And one time, there was just this one particular Sunday, uh, she went after my kids, and we were sort of standing right at the back of the door about to leave. And, and normally, I'm a nice guy. I would say, oh, well, thank you for, thank you for your thoughts. That's, that's helpful for me to know how you feel, you know? And then I would go home and go, Arr. Anyway, but that particular day, that particular day, Something about, there was a bunch of people standing around, and I don't know. My flesh rose up, and I gave her a little tongue lashing in front of about 30 people. It was not pretty. There was like silence, and people were slowly slipping away because they were like, our pastor has never raised his voice at anyone like in eight years, and what's going on right now in the sanctuary is not pretty. Anyway, and, and it was wrong. She stood there with a smile on her face. It was like she thought to herself, I've finally done it. I've convinced my pastor to get angry. It was almost like joyful for her. It wasn't joyful for me. I still look back on it as one of my greatest failures as a pastor to lose my temper in front of 25, 30 people and yell at a lady in the sanctuary. That's not what pastors are supposed to do. But people with the spirit of offense, not only can they do it, they enjoy doing it. It gives them some sense of power and control. And you know what I'm talking about because you know some people who like to do that. They do it in your family reunions. They do it at church. They do it in the workplace. They do it on the street. We have politicians who do it on television. They're good at it. And they know how to push the buttons. It's a sad, sad thing. But what if, and this is a hard question, but what if it's us? What if we are the person with the spirit 
of offense? What if we're the ones that's doing the button pushing? Let me ask you this question. If everyone, I mean everyone, even the nice people in your life are always upset with you and mad with you, could you be the person pushing the buttons? Could you be the person with the spirit of offense? Could you be the Nabal in the story? I hope not, but sometimes we are. We don't want to be, but sometimes we are. Well, let's go on. Now that I've offended everyone, <laughs> let's go on. We see in verses 14 and verse 18, one of Nabal's young men, one of his employees, he realized what's about to happen. He saw how Nabal treated David's men, and he knew David and knew David's reputation, and he thinks to himself, this is about to get bad. This is about to get ugly. So he runs to Abigail and quickly tells her the story. Now, I think that's interesting, the way he runs to Abigail and tells the story. And then what does Abigail do? Well, she hurries up and she takes a long list of supplies. She doesn't say, oh, that doesn't sound like something Nabal would say. (laughs) She knew that was exactly something Nabal would say. She doesn't question the employee. She knows exactly the kind of husband she's married to. The way the, the, the young man goes and tells Abigail, the way Abigail responds, you know what it tells me? It tells me this is not the first time that this has happened, that this has probably happened many times, and that the employees and the family are having to do all kinds of things behind the scenes to keep the peace. When they realize what's going to happen, and they realize this is all about to hit the fan and going to get ugly, they start doing stuff to try to fix the problem. And that that, that is just an incredible thing, that they're having to fix someone else's problem. If you have someone in your family... If you have someone in your workplace, if there's someone in the church that has the spirit of offense, then you know what that's like. Because my guess is, is that you have spent a lot of time behind the scenes trying to fix their mess. Family and friends of people who have the spirit of offense often have to run interference for them and try to keep the peace. And people with the spirit of offense, they seldom realize or appreciate what family and friends are doing behind the scenes to keep the peace. They think they're the ones that are always right, and the other people are always having to fix it. Uh, When you have to go away from a family reunion and you have to make three phone calls to apologize for what Uncle so-and-so said, you know what I'm talking about, right? You've been there. You've done that. It's tough. Abigail, not only does she have to gather up this gift, you look at verses 23 and verse verse 27, not only does she have to gather up this gift and take it to David, but look what it says there. It says she has to get on the ground and kneel in front of him and beg him not to go kill her husband. How humiliating. It doesn't just take her time and some some money, some materials to to fix this, but it takes her self-esteem. You know what I'm talking about if you love someone who has a spirit of offense. Because you have often been probably embarrassed or humiliated trying to fix the problems that they've created. It's so hard. It is hard to love someone with the spirit of offense. Because we are oftentimes humiliated and embarrassed. We're making excuses for behavior for which there really is no good excuse. It's awkward. It's difficult. It's hard. But we do it because we're trying to keep the peace and make things right. That's what Abigail does in the story. Well, look at verses 32 and verse 34. I'm sort of skipping through the story pretty quickly here. She gets to David and she stops him. Now, David's ready. He's got his sword on. He's got his, he's got his posse with him. And they're not looking for squirrel head anymore. They're looking for Nabal's head, okay? They're not looking to just get a snack. They're going to go kill everybody and take it all, okay? Which is the wrong response. They shouldn't have this response. But that's their, in their anger, that's what they're doing. Abigail sort of literally heads him off at the pass. She goes down the mountain pass and gets to him before he gets to, 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 to Nabal. And she stops him. And she embarrasses herself. She humiliates herself. She does all of this. How does David respond? 
He's thankful. Thankful that Abigail came and stopped him from doing wrong. You see, even though in that moment David was angry, even though in that moment David was frustrated, he realized that two wrongs don't make a right. And he decides not to go through with his plan to fight Nabal. He pulls himself back from this angry episode. He pulls himself back from the edge, which shows incredible restraint and incredible maturity on David's part. Now, here's what I find interesting about this. He pulls himself back from this. He, he pulls himself back from this, from this horrendous sort of response to the way he's treated. But what I find interesting is that David himself could have developed a spirit of offense. You see, think about it. I mean, David's life had not exactly been perfect. Remember when David was little and his little brothers made fun of him a lot? Oh, you just brought all these supplies to the army because you want to see, you want to see what the army is. Go back and take care of your sheep. One time even Samuel, who was writing these scriptures later, said, oh, surely this isn't the one that God wants to ordain to be the next king of Israel. Look, he's like the scrawny runt. Surely he's not the one. I mean, he's not exactly had an easy life either. He was, we don't know for sure, but most people think that David was a redhead. All right, now if you're a redhead, then you know. Redheads have always been persecuted through life, right? <laughs> what a tough life it was. Here, the, here he is, David, right at this moment when this scripture was written, living in the woods, in the wilderness, not because he did something bad, but because he did something good. And the king is trying to kill him for it. Uh, I mean, think about it. If anyone had a right to be offended... It was David. So here's Nabal, who's got it all, who is offended. Here's David, who at the moment has very little, who somehow chooses not to be offended. Both of them had things that have happened in their lives. Both of them could have chosen to have a spirit of offense, and they could have gone at each other's throats with no good peaceful resolution in sight. By the way, that describes the current culture that we're living in in America. We have people on both sides of every possible perspective, whether it's political, economic, racial, we got people on every side of every perspective who have received the spirit of offense. And instead of trying to work out their problems in a meaningful way that would actually produce something healthy and something good, let's just attack each other and let's just rip each other apart as if somehow by doing that, it'll bring peace. And it won't. It won't. It will not bring peace. Somehow in David's life, Somehow in David's life, he had learned how to deal with offenses. He had learned how to forgive. He had forgiven his brothers for them making fun of them. He had somehow forgiven King Saul. Again, I don't have time to tell all these stories, but remember there was one scene in David's life in which King Saul was in a cave and David had the opportunity to kill him and could have solved all those problems, but he chose not to. Uh, he had somehow learned to forgive David refused to allow a spirit of offense to take root in his heart. And that's why, even though he lost his temper for the moment, he was able to pull back from the actual killing of someone else because he realized that is not the way I want to, that's not the person I want to be. It's not the life I want to live. Now, why is this important? This is important to us because like David and like Nabal, all of us have been hurt at some point in our lives. If we started on one side of the room and we went around to the other side and we let everyone talk and we all felt comfortable sharing the worst hurts of our life, which many of us don't feel comfortable sharing that, but let's just say in a perfect world we all felt comfortable sharing, we would be shocked at the stuff we would hear out of the people sitting in this room of things that have been done to them in their life. And we would go, wow, 
I never knew. I never knew that that awful thing happened to them. And in some people's lives, it wasn't just one thing. It was two things or three things or eight things or ten things. There are people in this room who have experienced incredible hurt and incredible pain. But all of us have experienced some hurt and some pain. We all have issues. What differs is how we handle that hurt and the issues that arise from it. Will we allow the spirit of offense to take root in our heart for it to poison our entire life and then us to see everything through that lens of negativity? Or will we discover the power of forgiveness so that we can see the wonderful blessings of the life that God has given us? In this story, we have two contrasts. We have David who learned the power of forgiveness who eventually goes on to become the king. Probably one of the greatest kings the nation of Israel ever experienced. His ability to forgive carried him to greater heights in his life. Likewise, Nabal, unfortunately, hung on to his offense, hung on to his anger. And where did that lead him? Well, look at verse 37. We're almost to the end of the story. In the morning when Nabal sobered up, his wife told him about these events. He had a seizure and became paralyzed. The next day when Nabal hears about this disaster that his, his, his actions almost brought upon him, it did something inside of him somehow in some way. He ended up paralyzed. And the next verse tells us that 10 days later, he died. Wow. One guy learns forgiveness, goes on to be the king. The next guy refuses forgiveness, and he's, he's dead a couple of weeks later. What an awful, awful way to end the story. Brothers and sisters, when we allow a spirit of offense to take root in us, it will grow like a cancer until it chokes the life out of us. It will choke us emotionally and spiritually and relationally and even physically. There are physical manifestations that happen by not having the ability to forgive. No matter how you want to define it, an offense is just not worth holding on to. Now you might say, Terry, they don't deserve forgiveness. You're probably right. They probably don't. But this isn't about them. This is about us finding health, us being able to move past it, us being able to find the blessings of God in our lives. <clears throat> I'm gonna, I've just got a couple of examples and then we'll be done here. I was reading a blog the other day. By this lady, it was a, oh, it's a horrendous blog. Oh, you, oh my goodness, it's page after page after page, entry after entry after entry of this awful husband that she has who's abused her and her children. It just makes you want to blood boil, makes you want to get on your sword and go find the guy and chop his head off. Is what it makes you do. You read all this. But then she had this entry toward the end of her blog. She wrote this. She said, it's been a bad few weeks, and my emotional state has landed me on probation at work. And then they cut my hours, all right, because, her, you know, she just couldn't function, right? I'm going to see if I can get on disability for the depression that has reared its ugly head again. Now look at this. My life is still a shambles even five years after my divorce. So she's been out of this bad situation for five years, but she's still struggling with it. Now, does her husband deserve forgiveness? She doesn't really tell us much about where he is in, in, on her blog. Believe me, I read it. I even searched his name to see if I could find it on Google, all right? I couldn't find him anywhere. But I can just tell you, based on my experience, he's out there somewhere with another woman probably doing the same thing all over again. He is probably not thinking about his wife and the children whom he left behind because guys like that just don't care. 
All right, so he probably isn't. So he's out there doing his terrible thing, probably forgotten who his first wife was as he does whatever it is he's doing. But she's still struggling with it. Five years later, she's still bound by this. If she doesn't find forgiveness, she's never going to find the happiness that she needs in life. This isn't unusual. This is just one example that I found on this one blog from this one lady who's a, who's a really talented writer. Uh, but this is actually something that psychologists tell us is actually the way it is for everyone. Dr. Raymond Lloyd Richmond is a psychologist from San Francisco who maintains a website on the psychology of forgiveness. By the way, he is not a religious person. He does this completely from a secular perspective. But here's what he says. Anyone, and he emphasizes the word anyone, anyone who has ever been victimized, and that includes, he lists all these things out, survivors of crime, accidents, childhood abuse, political imprisonment, warfare, and so on, must decide whether or not to forgive the perpetrator. There can be no middle ground on this. Either you decide to forgive the person who hurt you, or you hold on to the bitterness and anger. Well, let me bring all of this to a conclusion. I've said a lot, talked a lot, and you guys are ready for me to be done. Here's what I want you to hear from this story. Many of us, probably I could say all of us, but I use the word many, many of us have been deeply offended by something in our past. Something happened to us. That offense was real, and it should not be taken lightly. So I'm not just saying, oh, it's nothing. Just ignore it. No big problem. No, no, no. It was real. It was a real offense, okay? And it it hurt, and it was painful. But at some point, we must learn to forgive and move beyond the offense. Otherwise, a spirit of offense will take root in our lives and it will eventually poison every aspect of life. We can have money. We can have a caring family. We can even have a strong spiritual community. But none of that will bring us peace. We must get rid of the spirit of offense in order to have a happy life. Brothers and sisters, if you're here today or you're watching on the internet, and you sense that spirit of offense inside of you, could you say, oh God, today, today, help me to begin to break free. Now, you may not be able to break free instantly. Some people can. Praise God for those who can. Most of us, it takes a little while. But we can begin the journey toward forgiveness so that we don't have to live as a victim of whatever that awful thing is that legitimately awful happened and shouldn't have happened. We don't want to live our whole life like that. We want to live a life of beauty and blessing that God is trying to give us. And if you're here and you've got the spirit of offense, oh, ask God to help you to find a way. And if you need to see a professional psychologist, do it. If you need to talk to someone, if you need to to, to confront someone, whatever it is, do whatever it takes to get free of the spirit of offense. If you're here this morning or you're watching on the Internet, and maybe it's not you, maybe you've learned the value of forgiveness. you got that figured out. But you have a friend, you have a loved one. And they're bound by those chains. Would you start thinking and praying about how you might help them to just release those chains? Because they'll never be happy. No matter how much money, how many family, whatever job, they'll never be happy until they let go of whatever that offense is. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? And in the quietness of this moment, would you allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart? Maybe it's you with the spirit of offense just right there in your seat. Would you say, God, right now, right now, help me to begin to let go. Maybe it's not you. Maybe it's a loved one. You're thinking of a name right now of someone you know, a relative, a friend, someone in the workplace that you work with. And you're saying, oh, God, help me to bring the light of Christ into their life so they can find freedom from past offense.
Oh, Lord, right now, I pray in this moment, your Holy Spirit might be present, that your Holy Spirit might speak to our own lives in a deep and powerful way. Here's this story that, that we probably have read before, but honestly, we probably, it probably is not one of the central stories of our spiritual heritage, and yet it's so powerful. I pray, Lord, that you might help us to see the power in this and to experience the power of forgiveness. And I pray right now in the name of Jesus Christ, in the powerful name of our Savior, that you would break the chains that are holding the hearts of people who are listening to my voice right now. Break the spirit of offense. Cast it out in the name of Christ and replace it with a Holy Spirit power of forgiveness that will help us to get back to that place to where we can see the blessings of God and experience the joy of our salvation. Oh God, may your spirit do that in this moment. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together as we close.